Hi, hello. Welcome to episode six of Trail Society. I'm Corinne Malcolm. I'm Keely Henninger, currently in Portland, Oregon, where it is super rainy and cold. Gross. And I'm Hillary Allen. I'm uh, I'm back in Boulder, Colorado. Hillary, the last time I saw you was at was in my neck of the woods. Was up at Broken Arrow, um, up in Tahoe. Um, how did that go? It was a fun weekend. Oh man, it was so much fun. First of all, I have to say that uh, you and Dylan did a phenomenal job at the covering the race. So, I mean, and I was having people like, so you guys only covered the vertical kilometer and the 26 K. Um, cause those are both national championship kind of, uh, races. Um, but I had people that are just like, dang it, we want the coverage of the live coverage for the 52. I was like, well, Corinne's racing. So <laughs> Dylan can do it too, but it was like, it was so much fun. Uh, air quotes. You were racing. Come on now. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, uh, I think that's a huge win, Corinne. You did. You raced. You did the one lap did, of the 52K. Yeah, I did one lap. And everyone's like, Corinne, you know, the one lap race is on Sunday. I was like, I know I'm talking about the one lap race on Sunday, though. So I'm only allowed to do one lap of the 52K. So I dropped out happily at the halfway mark. It was great. Which is a huge, I think that's, that's amazing testament to your determination for recovery because, um, it is not a linear progression and that's a huge run. So, um, I did lots of laps basically of the course. So I, I know, I know, uh, Palisades Tahoe real well now. Um, but it was a great weekend. Um, uh, Brendan put on and the whole race organization put on such a good event, um, so not only did we have three races, so we had women's panels, we had movie nights, we had live music, some guy on some like violin and a drummer just like jamming for three hours. It was, uh, it was spectacular. Yeah. So the women's panel, we got to hang out with, um, Alicia Montoyo for a lot of the weekend. And I definitely think that she has to be our gal that comes on to talk about running through pregnancy and return to running and exercise after pregnancy, because she is so cool. And so amazing. And what a beacon of light to have coming into our trail world as well. She ran the 11K. I think it was her second ever trail race. So it was really, really cool to get to, you know, be there and just soak up all the vibes all weekend. That was a very yeah. Dylan Bowman comment, comment, all the vibes all weekend. Yeah. And Hillary, you ran every single day. You ran each race. I did. I did uh, something called the triple crown. So I did the VK. Friday, the 52K on, which was a little bit shorter, 48K on Sunday, and then the 26K on, wait, I did that Saturday and then Sunday. I'm confusing them. Three races over three days. Yes. (laughs) And it was a good field for the Triple Crown too. You ran against um, Allie McLaughlin um, out of Colorado Springs, who is so fast. Like she finished seventh, I think overall in the 52K running just under five hours on that course was crazy. And then, um, the young Grace Stauberg, um, who finished behind you, I think had a rough, had a rough 50 K, maybe a rough 26 K, but young and up and coming like hitter in the sport. So kind of cool to get to watch y'all throw down all weekend while being competitive in every single race. (laughs) Yeah, it was, uh, it was, it was super fun. I mean, um, Allie Mack, I know that was her, um, that's what she goes by, but that's, uh, that was her, um, first ultra, so to speak. I mean, it was 48 K, but technically still an ultra and she crushed it. Um, you know, like that girl climbs like no one's business. And I think it's actually really interesting to mention this because she also ran for, she ran for CU. Um, so, and she's, 
she might not look it because she's itty bitty, but she's 30. Um, so she's got quite a bit of experience running. Um, and I think she'd be a good segue into kind of talking about our, um, you know, our topic today and our, our episode, but we can link back to we'll her. Get, but just, we'll, we'll, bring, yeah. we'll bring her back up. She's got a cool multi-sport background right. too. I think that she was a field hockey player mm-hmm. um, while being like at the pinnacle of high school cross country because um, we were the same year, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, but we had a bunch of other lady crushers and um, we missed a lady crusher a while back um, who, I don't know if you guys have heard of the plane 100, but it's a hard rock qualifier. It's in outside of kind of Leavenworth, Wenatchee, Washington area um, in the Cascades. And it um, it's unmarked and unsupported. I think you can have aid at the 100K mark and that is it. Um, and there's this gal over there. She's a PT. Her name's Rachel Entrecken. And she was the former, I think she held the unsupported Wonderland record for a while. Um, is just a total, total badass. And she won overall beating Luke Nelson, who is no stranger to long ultras. Um, and she beat him, she beat him by like 30 or 40 minutes too. So like very, very cool. Um, so several people were like, Hey, you missed this one. And I was like, Oh no, this is a person that I actually like keep tabs on. Cause I think that she is phenomenally talented and no one knows it yet. So we just, that was a spoiler for the whole trail community. This woman is insane. And then, um, I was actually at Moab 240 this past weekend, um, out in Utah where the, another super young athlete, um, Annie Hughes, 23 years old out of Leadville, Colorado, won Leadville this year, back in August. Um, runs for Hoka. And then she ran the second fastest women's time on this course, on this 240 mile course. She was as high as fourth for a long time, ultimately finished seventh overall. And so the second best time ever for women with Courtney DeWalter being the only faster time. So super, super cool. The rest of the women in that field were insane. I was there crewing for a woman who ultimately finished third. Um, and you're just, you're out there. Like they all ran under 80 hours. Um, they had finishers that finished within the last 10 seconds of the race last night. The last two finishers finished with 10 seconds there, um, was 10, 10 PM mountain time last night, I think. And so that's like 118 hours or something. They started Friday morning. So they had more or less five days to complete it. Um, but still 240 miles over five days. Like, yes, Mike McKnight, you know, was twice as fast as the last person. He ran like 55 hours or something. Um, but like 240 miles over five days, like, I don't care if it takes you the whole five days, like that is a lot of distance to travel. And I think this kind of segues well into another topic that was kind of hot and heavy in the news this week was while I was in Moab, not far away from there, there's another race going on, um, in the Wasatch called the DC peaks 50 mile. And I'm wondering if any of, if either one of you picked up, saw this news story, it was covered by, it was in the New York times. So I'm assuming it caught your attention. Uh, can you tell everyone what happened out there? I mean, I got blasted from my aunts and uncles and my parents and a bunch of people who are not runners because they all saw this headline of 87 runners rescued after snowstorm derails an ultra marathon in Utah. And they thought I was probably running it because they've never seen ultra marathoning in the news before. And there can't be that many of those. Right. Um, so yeah, I think I didn't even find it on my own. I actually found it because my dad messaged me first. Um, but yeah, it was a very trendy headline and then diving into it a little bit deeper, you find out that within the first four hours of the race, 
uh, a foot and a half of snow landed on the the mountain range there at about 6,000 feet high. Um, and so the 87 runners in the race, um, were quote unquote rescued, um, because a lot of them were like in shorts and t-shirts, um, in that North Salt Lake area. And so it turned pretty brutal pretty quickly. So that race was, um, I think canceled. Yeah. They essentially neutralized it and the race director, you know, quickly in communication with the first, the first aid station captain said, okay, we got to neutralize this, you know, I think is kind of both being maybe pat on the back and also kind of shunned for his activation of search and rescue in the area. Um, basically he called search and rescue and said, Hey, like we don't currently have an incident, but we could have an incident. And like, if you have people to send out to support us, that would be great. Like we're trying to get, you know, 87, 87 people that that was the entire field. It was a very, it's a first year race. It was a small field. It's a mid October 50 mile in the mountains. That's kind of risky no matter where you are. Um, but we sign up for these races knowing the risks, right? Like we know that weather is a thing that happens in any of these places. So it was really interesting though, to kind of, you know, use the term rescued, right? Like there actually, there was a comment on the iron far coverage of this race where uh, someone there, someone who's there supporting it said, you know, to see it's disheartening to see national and local news report that all these runners had to be rescued, which prompted so much unnecessary comments, feedback, um, many from outside the ultra community. Um, well, I think the RDs handled everything great from canceling early to mobilizing runners to get out of the mountains. I think mandatory gear would be a great addition to the race next year. Although I'm guessing most who run it in next it next year will be planning for gear anyways. So that's a really interesting, you know, thing to think about here. We've had some tragedies over the past year in multiple races in China at, at UTMB, um, in Europe, um, here could have been a tragedy and wasn't. Um, and then also in Moab ahead of the week, knowing the storm was coming in and we were going to be running in the LaSalle's kind of late into the race. Um, Candace, the race director for the Moab 240, said, Hey, we're going to the alternative snow course to keep you lower in elevation because we're supposed to get snow above 7,000 feet and we're going to try to keep you at or below 7,000 feet. Um, so we kind of cut, cut low across the mountains to avoid what could have been snow, um, particularly for the back half of the race, Monday afternoon into Tuesday. And they also said, Hey, not only are you carrying your mandatory gear, but you're also a new piece of mandatory gear is going to be a waterproof jacket with a hood. So I think that's really interesting. Like what can race directors do to implement these safety standards? Like, do you guys have any ideas or thoughts there? Well, I think you just said it. I mean, one of the main differences I think between the U S races and and European races is the difference between mandatory gear. We don't really don't have them in the United States. Um, like no one is going through a checklist or, you know, stopping you at during a race, um, or even at a race check-in in order for you to get your bib before you enter the race. So I think, um, that's a really good starting point. And exactly what Candace did is, you know, I remember running, run the rut and, and, 2000, I forget what, uh, 16, I was there. Yeah. 2016. And it was a horrendous snowstorm. And I mean, sure. People who are quote unquote fast enough could have gotten through some of the, before the really big storm hit, but still, I mean, we were running, we're deviated to the course B, which maybe wasn't as, you know, mountainous or fun, but it was definitely a lot safer. And, you know, we were running in the conditions, um, pretty cold conditions all day. Uh, so it's having course B's and not being afraid to implement them. Yeah. I think that takes planning though. Right. Like I wonder if in a first year race like this and permitting is hard also, right. And the U S permitting is very difficult. And so you have to all of a sudden permit for a plan B too. And that seems, I don't know enough about that, but that seems like a very hard task. And another quick tidbit, um, 
for the NAR runners events in Fort Collins, the, um, the never summer hundred K had to implement a plan B race this year also, uh, due to, you know, uh, a storm weather warning, um, the weekend in July that it was. And so they had a plan B ready and they implemented it, um, to just to avoid, um, those issues. And even though there wasn't so much snow accumulation and weather, you know, they, they did it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and they're, not going to get like any sort of backlash for that because the runners still got to run and the runners were safe so it's like they got both of those things through which is pretty awesome yeah and that's obviously going to be what's most important and there was there were rumor during during moab while we were out there running that they potentially would maybe even have to change the 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 cutoff time at the aid station that kind of was the high point that we would hit in the um on the alternative course in the lasalle's because that that cutoff time i think was 10 p.m monday night and they were going to be getting the worst of the weather. And that was about 8,500 feet, I think, in elevation, 8,600 feet. And so, you know, I can't imagine, you know, all of a sudden in the race being like, oh, I actually only have until 6 p.m. to get there instead of 10 p.m. But, you know, they were working through all their plan Bs and Cs because they have to keep not only the runners safe, but they have to keep their aid station workers safe because those are volunteers out there, right? You don't want an incident. And I think they also like maybe mobilized some extra search and rescue folks to be out on the course, just kind of keeping keeping tabs on runners. but. We all have to accept a certain degree of risk in these races. It's obviously our responsibility as, as much as as it's our responsibility to know the course, right? Like there's markings out there, but still your responsibility as a runner to know the course. Um, It's also our responsibility to make sure that we go into these races with everything that we need to handle various conditions, mandatory gear or not. But maybe that's a trend we're going to see particularly, I think particularly after the disaster in China this year, that devastating event that we will likely see more of it, but I think we're getting a bad rap that ultra marathons are really dangerous and really risky. And that I don't, I don't want to be, I don't think it has to be that way because knowing how hard these race directors work, I don't think that that is always the case. Yeah. But maybe that's a good point is maybe these race directors are working really hard on, on these races, which obviously they have to, to, to execute some of these phenomenal events. Maybe they need to allocate some more like staff or some funds or some time towards like people who have the bandwidth to like, do like fire drills of these crazy events that might happen to just really thoughtfully plan out like plan B's or what to do when something really goes awry instead of having to think about it from the seat of their pants, because like, that's just not going to end very well. Yeah. I think, I think it's continual lessons learned and hopefully we'll, we'll get better from here, but it was interesting to see us make national news for maybe something that none of us were super proud of, but um, today in episode six, we're going to dive into the thick of it a little bit with, I think, a, a topic that's close to all of our hearts. Um, and really, it's close to your hearts at home. It sounds like we had several um, people write into us, um, particularly male coaches. And they were asking specifically as male coaches, how could they possibly be like, how could they be the best possible coach for the young female athletes that they're working with? Right. Because that's sometimes a, a, not a natural fits and it's a little bit of a mismatch. Um, and they, they don't always understand everything that we've gotten to go through our entire lives. So, um, as always, we're gonna have a female slant on our show because that is our personal experiences, but you know, my feelings on this, I have ranted and raved to you all about this is that I think this is a conversation for all coaches, both men and women coaching all people, because I don't think this is just a female issue. Um, and I know Keely, you pulled some stats that I'm sure will not surprise some people at home but I'm wondering if you can help walk us through the current state of keeping girls in sports. Sure. Yeah. And I I pulled these stats um, pretty timely because I got asked this in the 
office hours with pillars last week too, from a couple of really ambitious coaches there who really wanted to better understand the state of the sport, as well as like figure out how to, to increase the amount of girls coming back through their track and cross country programs too. Um, and obviously these stats kind of apply to all sports um, and some even apply to just movement activities and, and physical activity. Um, but a report released from the Canadian women in sport um, found that one in three girls drop out of sport by their late teens, which is around two to three times more than, than boys. Now, this is not saying that boys don't drop out of sport either, because that still means about one in 10 boys are dropping out of sport too. So this is definitely an issue for all children. Um, and this is kind of paralleling these overall inactivity ratings that have been increasing over time in youth. Um, and they're increasing even more through middle school and high school. And there's a lot of factors that can be going around this. Um, but some of these are around like physical activity classes not being mandatory anymore. Some of these are around different thoughts that a lot of the girls have around body issues and self-confidence. And a lot of girls don't have this. Um, but yeah, there's there's a lot of like really negative impacts of girls dropping out of sport because there's a ton of really, 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 really good benefits to physical activity as a young girl that will translate to later in life. And um, I don't know if you guys want to talk to some of these, but there's definitely perks to, to stick into sports. Yeah. Have you, I know Hill, have you been able to look at over, look at any of the research there as far as like the benefits of keeping, keeping girls particularly in sports or just keeping people in sports in general, as far as like longitudinal outcomes? Well, yeah. I mean, I think like we all come from different backgrounds. And so obviously like I can speak, I can speak to myself and, um, you know, my experience in sport, but I think it's really a catch 22, especially when we're talking about self-confidence and, and things like this, you know, it's really uncomfortable when, um, you know, a woman's body changes like through puberty and you don't feel kind of like at home in it. Right. And every, every single girl is different. Um, but I think the first thing that can cause is just issues with self-confidence. You don't, you don't feel as confident. You don't want to move your body as much. And then, but really if you keep on moving your body and learn how your body reacts to sport and you have someone guiding you along in that, um, you can kind of make adaptations and you become, I think you become a better athlete and you learn kind of your strengths and your weaknesses. Maybe you switch sports. Um, and so these are, this is kind of just different trends that, um, with all these different articles that we've been posting, um, and just kind of reading and, um, before doing this episode, I mean, that's just, a something that I've noticed, um, and that I didn't stop doing sport because of that. I might've switched sports that kind of suited more my interests or my body types or something that I felt kind of more welcomed into. Um, but it's also indicative of kind of these women role models that you have, um, kind of moving through this and coaches male or female, but coaches that really encourage you to explore these things or to kind of take a break. Um, and that's just been, I mean, I haven't had like a really a lot of background in running in particular, that's been something I got into later in life. But I think specifically with tennis, um, I primarily had female coaches when I was doing tennis, um, in junior high and then high school and that exploration to really figure out kind of where I fit best on the team and, you know, what my strengths and weaknesses were really stuck with me as I continued to pursue different sports. Um, 
Yeah. I think a big thing here too, is that none of us would have, none of us grew up with a, a want for a, like, you know, whatever, whatever we needed was probably provided for us. I think that we all come from pretty stable, stable home, home lives. Um, but I think a big issue here too, is just like, as bodies change, like your, your needs and equipment change. And so I know that there are a lot of organizations that have, in, have initiatives in, primarily based on like sports bra initiatives, because right. You just talked about how uncomfortable you can feel in your body. And if all of a sudden, you know, you feel uncomfortable and you don't have the appropriate equipment that can make doing sport really, really hard and embarrassing and not feel like you're doing it right. And so I think that that is something that should be considered, right? Is like, what do girls need access to? Boys are not going to be going through that as much. They don't need sports bras. And so I think that, you know, that having companies start those initiatives to to provide sports bras to underserved communities to help keep girls in sports can be huge. This goes to like girls on the run as well. Organizations like that, that, that target kind of elementary school and middle school aged girls to get to before, before teams are available to them, right. For something like running, um, to get them active, to get them active with good peer mentors, um, and good, good older mentors. And then I think kind of the thing that we really want to touch on there too, is that there are beyond, you know, perceived both, both real and perceived uncomfortable, like being uncomfortable is, is that keeping girls in sport is important because there are long-term health consequences of not being active. And there, there are clear positive health outcomes of moving your body and moving your body enough. And so Keely, I'm wondering if you can just tag some of those kind of key health benefits that come from just from keeping girls physically active. Yeah. Well, I think we need to remember that the girls who move when they're young are more likely to move when they're older than girls who don't move when they're young. And so there's this really lopsided trend where the amount of women participating in sports when they're older is super low as well, whereas that's not quite the same for men. And so, yeah, establishing this really healthy relationship with sports when you're young will ultimately keep you moving throughout your life for longer and then kind of lead you into a healthier life and keep you away from some of those like sedentary risk diseases that are definitely like high risk for people who are not moving. So, yeah, there's there's a lot of papers out there. Some of them cite things like obesity and diabetes and cardiovascular disease and and obviously like individual relationships and self-esteem. And so. Yeah, there's a ton of things that moving throughout your entire life um, can kind of help you navigate instead of like just being sedentary. And it all starts, I think, with with the youth. Yeah. And yeah, and kind of identifying that there's this like there's this specific time frame in which girls drop out at higher rates. And that's pro- probably also due to the fact that that women hit puberty earlier. And although the three of us do not come from traditional running backgrounds into ultra running, we all I think we all actually grew up playing ball sports. And so I'm wondering. I think we all have a puberty story or of like kind of recognizing that something has changed. And I'm wondering if either one of you remember like when puberty hit for you. I can start. <laughs> Do it. Um, but this is also some, a point that I wanted to make and something that, I mean, I really like all of the articles and, you know, the studies that are, that, you know, Keely, you got these statistics from, right. Noting that women drop out, you know, at a much higher rate in sport than men do. But it's also, I think it speaks to this other issue of kind of the culture and the upbringing, right? Kind of the culture surrounding women in general. Um, And I say this just as a, as a, a comparison. So I like, I'm 
I compare women, I think compare to other women, people compare to other people, but I think in that happens maybe with a lot more frequency, um, in women, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, or if you disagree, uh, but, uh, this was particularly apparent for me when comparing to my sister. So my sister and I, same genetic pool, um, but my sister has a completely different body type than me. She hit puberty and, um, you know, she, her body didn't really change. And she was a very, very, very good runner. And when I hit puberty in high school, maybe a little bit later, like I just had more muscle. I was a completely different body type and running, even though that was kind of in my DNA, in my family's history, it just didn't suit me as well. And so I pivoted to do other sports. And I think I'll, maybe a lot of women, they would pivot to maybe just give up sports entirely, like if their body felt uncomfortable. But I just, I just remember this when, you know, just one day, junior year of high school, I walk in and I'm just like, well, I need a bra now. Um, and it was just kind of like, I mean, <laughs> I'm athletic, so I don't have like terribly big breasts, but, um, you know, I was happy that they weren't that big. So they didn't get in the way of tennis, but like, still, they felt a little bit, I mean, I remember that first, um, that first day in gym class where I needed a bra, but I forgot the sports bra. And I was like, this is very uncomfortable. <laughs> totally. And then, I mean, add in getting your period and all I could remember, it was dreading the first day I was going back to school with my period was because the cool thing to do was to figure out which one of your friends was having their period and throw the tampon around the, the, like, no. yeah, the mess hall and to make fun of everyone. And, and I, I mean, I feel like that's why this topic like hits home for me is because that's not really changing. It's still really embarrassing to get your period and to have these changes. Like you don't really get like positive thoughts around these things until much later in life. And so to have to like combine this with decreasing, like, sport performance and like wearing clothes that don't really accentuate any of these things. And you're trying to like kind of hide in them and, and hide your period all at the same time. Like no wonder that people are kind of like girls drop out of sport at these times, because that's just like a very uncomfortable scenario. Yeah. And, and it's, you don't necessarily have like the, uh, not to say cognitive skills, but you're like, you're, you're young. You don't necessarily have a way to vocalize this discomfort adequately and so just like avoidance is a great strategy for things that bother you um i say that with a degree of sarcasm but it is still my coping mechanism avoiding things that bots that stress me out so that's why i'm a, a huge procrastinator but that's i think that's so interesting that it's like that was legit they just like threw tampons at people when they're getting their period that's so that's so mean i was one of those early puberty kids i haven't grown since seventh grade I was like periodically, I was like for a very short period of time, tall. I'm like completely average in height. Um, but I was the tall, I was the tall middle schooler at like five, six and a half. Um, and ha didn't grow after that. Like I, when I started ski racing, I like put on more muscle mass because I was lifting weights, but like, I feel, I feel a little bit like I snuck through puberty. Like I remember feeling really awkward in my body. Like I hated my knees because I was really gangly because I grew a lot really quickly. Mm -hmm. I was very gangly, like all limbs. Mm -hmm. And I hated my knees. And so I refused to wear shorts besides like soccer shorts. So I would only wear shorts for gym class. And I, so I, and I, like, I now hate capris, but as like a middle schooler, like there's so many photos of me walking around in like pedal pushers and capris because I just, I hated my knees because they were like the widest part of my leg because I had grown too fast. So I think like, to me, that was like that, that stuck out to me a lot. But I think I also got lucky in the sense that like, 
I kind of like got tall or tall for me and then like, and then put on muscle mass in a different sport. And so I don't feel like as opposed to my friends who went through puberty a little bit later, I feel like got rocked in a totally different way as far as like, you know, your hips widening and growing breasts and like depositing more adipose tissue and all these things and getting your period. Like, I feel like I got, I somehow got lucky in this process. And I feel like I dodged a bullet that so many of my friends got totally annihilated by in high school. And that was so much harder for them to deal with body image issues and that kind of thing, because they were going through this much more profound change than I was. I felt like mine was a much more, I had a subtle, I had a very subtle puberty in that sense. So I'm wondering, do you guys have any other kind of thoughts as to why, you know, so obviously when puberty hits, it's kind of when we, I think we lose the most girls in sport because you're, you just don't feel like you feel so unnatural in your body. We see this with with boys too. When they get really tall, really fast, they like all of a sudden are super uncoordinated, which can't feel very good. But I feel like in women, it's associated with something so much more profound. And I'm just wondering if you guys have any thoughts as far as like how, obviously we're gonna talk more about specifically guiding young athletes through this, but just like, Keely, I know that you were on a a office hour calls with, with uh, pillars earlier. And there are a bunch of male coaches in the room or in the Zoom room rather. And they were totally flabbergasted about what women go through when they hit puberty. And I do know that we have some male listeners because we're getting questions from male coaches. And I have a, a, a an athlete of mine who is almost 70 years old and he listens to our podcast and he thinks that, and he's learning a lot from it. And so I think that <laughs> if you wouldn't mind just walking the general public through, like what that looks like, who might, who, who might not have experienced female puberty, what that looks like. Sure. Yeah. So I think what really shocked me from the office hours was just tying all of these things together. Cause I think all of the coaches know about puberty and they know about how athletes act before puberty and they know how they've seen athletes trend to act after puberty, but I don't think they could kind of make that connection between what's, what's occurring and how that's influencing their actions. And so you know, you're going along at this like relatively linear trajectory for a lot of your of your youth. And then you hit this age around like 11 to 13 to 14, later, later bloomers, earlier bloomers, it's kind of a variable number where you start having these big changes where you slowly start getting hair in weird places. You're starting to get a larger cue angle from your femur to your hip socket due to the widening of those hips. And you're getting more adipose tissue in the buttocks and the breast area. And you're starting to get estrogen and estrogen impacts a lot of things. And it also brings your menstrual cycle and all of these things impact your ability to perform as an athlete. And so whether we're talking about like really, really athletic females at this age, or just your every average female, you're going to see changes in performance and you're going to see coordination go down and you're going to see them struggling through this while they're adjusting. And so there's this beautiful time in a girl's life where they're becoming a woman. That's pretty much it in a nutshell. And instead of navigating them through this and really highlighting these changes and giving them a year of a different sport or a year of something completely different and letting them be not as good as they were or different than they were and guiding them through it, we're kind of like, oh, you weren't as good as you were. Like, we're going to find someone who's faster and kind of leaving people behind because they don't know how to deal with these new, could be wonderful bodies. And so... I think just talking people through that timeline and making them realize that they're coaching these girls at one of the most magical times of their lives where they're going through these crazy changes that don't feel magical to them at all, but that if they're guided through them and the coach has patience, like 
they're going to come out on the other end, just as strong or stronger than they were before they went through all of this. It's just going to need some really like individualized coaching and some patience and an encouragement because it's so awkward. And that's so hard for coaches, right? Because you're having all these girls going through this transition into becoming women at different times, you know, you're going to have the weirdos like me who come in having hit puberty in middle school onto high school cross country. And you're going to have girls who are actively going through it. I hit puberty at at 16. So me too. I was late. (laughs) So I think that that is like that, that is, that is hard, right? Because all of a sudden it's not, you're just not coaching a cross country girls team. You're coaching a whole bunch. and, and, And honestly, from a coaching standpoint, you're still coaching individuals, but this is, this is why coaching a team and coaching individuals is so complicated because the needs of every athlete are going to be different. And that is heightened with this age group because they are going through something like in a way traumatic, right? It shouldn't be traumatic, but I think because society views this as this like no, no topic, right? We're not going to talk about periods. We're not going to talk about puberty. We're not going to talk about underperforming um, instead of just like addressing it head on and, and, and having it be this like welcome conversation, having it be this celebration of like growing up and maturing and becoming the athlete that you, that you will get to be in college, post-college, whatever that is like a really long-term thought process, not the, you know, I think it's easy as coaches to get caught in the like, well, they need to perform at state this year Mm -hmm. type of thing that we got to get into. So I think, you know, because this is geared towards the coaches that have reached out to us saying, how do I do this better? How do I be better? I want to know, like, can we walk through what coaches need to do to help young developing athletes through this time period? And I wanted to add something a little bit um, just before, Corinne, I'm not sure the, the, the coaches that have contacted you, like if they're high school, junior high, like college, um, like what age groups they are, but I just had just have just been thinking about this a lot. And um, I think a lot of sport when people get into it than junior high or high school. And it's a cool opportunity because it's through, it's through school sports, but you know, there's a bunch of different coaches. There's a coach for a swim team. There's a coach for, you know, the track. And then in, in track, there's like sprints, there's jumps, there's everything. Right. And I think there's a unique opportunity there that when women and girls start to go through these changes, if they are not excelling at one sport that they were, maybe collaborating with these other coaches to say, oh, okay, well then maybe you're good at this sport and maybe you should try this a little bit. And I know that gets complicated. Like if you're in high school and you have to compete at state and you're looking for, you know, if they're trying to continue on sport at a high level, but I think this could add to keeping girls in sport for a longer amount of time, instead of just saying, oh, you're not good at this one sport anymore, then let's quit altogether. Um, yeah, but I think I think but I think an important thing to remember here is that particularly at the high school level, most of these coaches are are educators, are are, you know, citizens in the community. They're they're not oftentimes professional coaches. And so I think that that is why this is such a this is why I think we have such a variety in quality of high school coaches, right? Where many of us will have really positive experiences with our high school coaches and many of us will have negative experiences with those high school coaches or have witnessed a coach saying something and being like, Oh my goodness, this 22 year old who is, you know, now a math teacher. And I feel like I'm targeting someone. I'm not, I don't know any of you. So I don't know. I don't, I, I'm trying not to target anyone is, is now coaching is now responsible for coaching the girls cross country program, you know, and does, and does the thing of saying, Oh, you look fast and I want to tear my hair out because you're talking about their physique and not their skill. 
And so I think that is why this conversation is important and why we need to walk all of us through how we can do this better. Mm -hmm. Totally. Yeah, I mean, I'll start us off. I think something we should think about for both athletes who are doing competitive sports, so people who are really gifted in sports who go up through middle school, high school, thinking about playing in college, as well as just people who are in regular physical activity programs, looking to move, looking to stay active. Like, I think the one thing that is really common between all of these groups is to make it fun. Like, regardless if you're coaching one sport or a gym class, like creating this diversity and movement in sport is like not only going to make people better athletes or more well-rounded is that it's going to keep them like with new, it's going to keep them with new stimulus. So they're going to be constantly stimulated with these new movements. And so if someone is going through puberty during these times and, and one movement is really hard and they used to be the best person at pull-ups because they had a really high strength to weight ratio and they could do so many pull-ups and then all of a sudden they can't do a single one. If you keep moving in different ways throughout the classes, so there's not always a target on one movement or one sport, that's going to allow for like different body types and different people to excel um, regardless of the time in there in their life stage. Yeah. Fun, fun should be first. I got so lucky. Our high school cross country team was like 75 kids. Like, and so not, obviously not everyone is there to compete. And so that meant on our easy days, like I ran to my friend's house and got cookies. Like it was great because like we had such a wide range of people on the team who were there because they wanted to be on the team because the team was fun. So I think it's like, you can have high performance in a fun environment without it being like insane. So I think that that is, I think fun, fun is the first guideline guiding principle there. And then I think another really important one, and this isn't actually something that I learned until later in life is talking about it, being open, not having this, you know, fear or embarrassing kind of moment around periods and menstruation and, you know, what that, what happens to a female's body. I mean, you have a, you know, a mixed gender um, team in, in high school and junior high. And so bringing in an expert to, to talk about it um, or having, I mean, the male coach himself talk about it too. And if the girls don't feel comfortable with that, well then, you know, um, having, having a female come and and talk about it. Um, but I also think it's really important for the boys to hear that too. Um, so there can't be, there doesn't need to be, um, this hush, hush. It's like an off an off limits, uh, topic. It should definitely be talked about. Yeah. Starting that dialogue is really important. I know, Hilly and I are coached by the same person um, who will will continue to say amazing things about Mr. Adam St. Pierre. And he, like we do, we use a menstrual tracking app um, so that he knows when, and, I, and before we used that, I just put in my in my training journal, like period started so that we can track it and we can track changes over time so that we know kind of what, you know, what to look out for. And everyone's going to trend differently there. And, we'll, and once again, we will do a whole, maybe multiple episodes on, on the menstrual cycle, but just being willing to have that conversation. And if you personally are not willing to have that conversation or feel comfortable having that conversation, or if your female athletes don't feel comfortable having that conversation with you, cause they might not having someone else, be it an assistant coach, who's a female, be it, I don't know, a team mom, be it someone in the community who's versed in this stuff, who can be that mentor, who can come in to have these conversations with these, with these girls, with these women, I think is really, really important. That's what Adam did. He's now the head ski coach at Montana State University. And he said, Hey, I've been using, I like helped him edit the email for it. He said, Hey, I've been using this with my, with my professional trail runners. Um, I would like to continue to use it with, with you all, because this thing is so important to your, your health and well-being and performance. Um, if you do not feel comfortable, please let me know. 
And now he's got an, a female assistant coach. So he's got another person on his team to help steer these conversations if someone isn't comfortable talking to him about it. But like putting yourself out there and being willing to have that conversation, I think goes a really long way. Yeah, totally. And I think like, Corinne, you already kind of touched on long-term, but I think we get to athletes like really reaching their potential long-term by having coaches really like staying on top of their training in the short term and like adapting it as needed. Right. And so, you know, if someone is going through puberty or someone is getting their period during these like really hard workouts or during gym class or whatever it is, like adapt it to them. Like don't force something during these crazy times. Like you can just, you know, stay encouraging and let them do something different so that they don't feel as like embarrassed or as just sized for being out there and being slower or something like that during these really awkward times. Um, and yeah, because that's just, that's just awkward. Yeah. Don't make it, don't make it awkward. Have fun. Be a, be, be there. Don't make it awkward. Um, there's also, and this is kind of jumping around a little bit, but, and it's something that we'll put in the show notes. I think it's a great resource. Um, we've got a bunch of resources that we'll put in the show notes for y'all um, to check out on your own time. But um, I'm a fan of the Canadians. I feel like the Canadians approach to long-term athlete development is really, really cool. I interacted with them a lot when I was doing biathlon um, and, and as a biathlon coach um, for junior high, high performing junior athletes. And so they have this thing called their long-term athlete development framework. And it starts with little kids and they talk about having an active start. And then, you know, you work on fundamentals, right? You're having fun with skills. And then, you know, you're a youth, a youth athlete and you're learning to train, right? So you're getting these lessons about like, okay, how, how does one train? And then there's a whole time period where you're training to train, you know, where it's like, it's not about competition. And, and, and the Canadian method is similar to some of the Scandinavian countries for Nordic skiing and stuff, where it's like the focus on competition doesn't come until you're like, you know, almost out of high school, like that, that age group almost. So you've got the, the learn to train, the train to train, the train to compete. And then you've got the train to win being your high performance. They're thinking about athletes, you know, trying to compete on an Olympic level way out on the other end. But I think you can work that framework to like youth development in soccer or in like all the way up until high school athletics even. So I think that you can, you can shift that framework to fit, to fit that model. And I, I love that it is this long term development strategy and not the throw all the eggs against the wall and see which one doesn't crack and then throw those eggs against the wall. And then the one that doesn't crack after that is like your champion. Like that is really unhealthy for long-term athlete development. And that's how we get these athletes with burnout who don't run collegiately because they're burnt out, who don't run after college because they're burnt out. So I think that that is really important to think about long-term athlete health and long-term athlete success over, over, you know, flying too close to the sun for one year when you're 16 and, and never being an athlete ever again. Totally. And that just comes from like the narrative that the coach can give them. Right. So if we can just equip these coaches with the right kind of narrative to share with these athletes so that they're talking about things like tracking their cycles and fueling properly and not being afraid of food and like not, not targeting people based off of body size, not making comments like Corinne has said around looking fit or looking fast or, or even as far as buying uniforms in a diversity of sizes, if you're coaching cross country girls, not all of them will fit into an extra small and small. So you should buy extra small through large because for those girls, like if they can't fit into a size and you don't have something higher, that's really embarrassing. And so it's really just like, yeah. They were having the flexibility to even change uniform sizes throughout the season, you know, right? Like, oh, I, I don't fit in this uniform anymore. Like what are having, we talked about this a little bit with like Olympic uniforms too, where it's like providing a diversity of uniforms, like both fit and style that all fit the team, the team uniform memo, right? So it's like, not everyone's going to want to run in Bundy's. 
right? Like don't force them to run in bundies. Not everyone's going to want to run in a crop top or a tight singlet versus a loose singlet. So having, obviously that's hard at a high school level, right? Like you're working on a tight budget, but I think having, having forgiving, having, you know, like forgiving, comfortable, welcoming apparel that doesn't make them feel that they don't fit into it, I think is really, is really important. And I think that creates that. I think you can create that via team culture as well. And team culture, I think is really important to develop. And part of that is like leading by example, right? I think that's huge. Either you or their parents. I don't know how, if you guys experienced this at all, but I had numerous friends growing up who, 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 who had both undiagnosed and diagnosed eating disorders or disordered eating. And a lot of times it was internalized from their parents from a mom or someone else in their life who, who also had an issue with their, their body, um, both competitively and otherwise. Um, and you know, and not intentionally took it out on their kid, but it, you, the kids see everything, little kids see everything, middle schoolers see everything, high schoolers see everything. Like you have to lead by example. And so I think that that like, that takes some self-reflection. It takes some thoughtfulness when it comes to communicating and being around your young athletes, because, they do observe everything and they do take everything in. So leading by example, I think can be very, very important. And if that, if that athlete doesn't have a role model at home to help lead by example, they don't have, maybe, maybe their, their parents aren't supportive or I don't know, have their own issues because we're human. Um, I think you can be that role model for that athlete. And I think that is very important. Right. And I think, uh, I mean, I don't know about you guys both, but, uh, Sometimes I don't, you know, the people that I love most, I can't take advice from them. It has to be like an outsider. So, um, you know, if like your significant other tells you to do something and then, you know, someone else, like, you know, my coach tells me to do the same thing. I'm like, oh yeah, you're right. So, you know, being that person that can be the sounding board that you can be the trustee and you can have those honest conversations with, I think, you know, that's what we're talking about fostering here. Um, and particularly for women, but just for, you know, all, all people. Hilly, you mentioned earlier that you and your sister have very different body types, same genetic pool, very different body types. And that can make that time of puberty even more awkward. And I'm wondering was like, how, like, how was that emotionally for you? Did that change how you acted, what you wore, what you ate? Like what kind of impact did that have on you as a, as a young athlete, as a high school athlete going through puberty? Yeah. So, you know, I've thought a lot about this, um, because I think it did. Um, there's definitely, I'm a, I'm a very competitive person and mostly like internally. So I, I hold myself to a very high standard. And so when I'm comparing to someone that, you know, I live with and she's having this huge amount of success, like she was, she was the fastest runner, um, on our high school cross country team. You know, she had all these big plans for going to college and all of this, this kind of stuff. And then ironically, you know, she suffered from burnout because there was just too much pressure. And then when her body finally did change, you know, there really wasn't a place for her to go. Um, but growing up emotionally, it was very hard. I think I internalized it. And so then I felt like I needed to be more careful about what I ate. And I think this kind of set me up for an eating disorder going into college. And even though I focused, one of the ways that I coped was like, well, I'm just not going to do the same sport as her. So we can't have a direct comparison. So then I did tennis and, um, but then going into tennis and in college, and this is something I've been open about too, is that I suffered from an eating disorder. And I think it had something to do with that because I put so much pressure myself feeling that because my body was different, I needed to treat it differently and I needed to shrink it down and make it look more more like my sister, because 
she was my sister. Aren't we supposed to look the same since we come from the same genetic makeup? Um, and so I think emotionally that was really hard because I felt like I needed to change my body instead of accept it for where it was and, you know, discover its strengths and what sports it was good at, you know, at its current weight size, um, all of that. Um, and I, th- I think that wasn't something that I was able to kind of to get, not get over. That wasn't something I was able to understand until later in life. And ironically, when I discovered trail running, so that's super interesting. I was going to say, I think, I think sport oftentimes, right. I think women and girls who are in sports that have a, a, a size performative element, it can become more of an issue. So running, right. Logically it's like, Oh, if I'm smaller, I'll be faster or figure skating or gymnastics or swimming with the specific uniform issues can be, can be it. And so I like that you, you like, I'm going to gravitate towards the strength sport. And that was kind of the same thing for me as well as that. I, I got hurt running and ended up in skiing. And as I ended up in skiing, I was getting stronger and putting on muscle mass and my body, my body, you know, had gone through puberty, but it was still changing. Like I was all of a sudden putting on this muscle mass that I think genetically was always there. And I remember I had to tell myself like, this is functional. Like I had to have a conversation with myself being like, I look the way I do because it is functional for my sport. And I feel like, you know, I got lucky in that way. I think I'm probably predisposed. My mom, my mom had an eating disorder in, in college. And so I think I'm, and there is definitely some, like, if you like genetically speaking, like that can predispose your, like your children to have an eating disorder as well. Um, and I think I got really fortunate that she, like her relationship with food had changed so much that by the time that I was going through adolescence, like that was never, never a thing that we like was never an issue. Never like not for something that came up, but like I could look at like Mir Bjorgen who you should all go Google is like the, maybe the strongest woman or what, you know, she's retired now, but it was like the strongest woman in skiing, just like this jacked human. And I had this picture of her, we had it in our, like in our, our ski weight room dungeon situation too, where it was like just a picture of, of Mjort skiing, like roller skiing and like shorts and a sports bra. And I was like functional strength. I, I am the way I am. I'm shaped the way I am because I am because of my sport. And it makes me, it makes me better at my sport. And I think that that is a weird was a weird way of me maybe coping with some of that change, but I do think that that can be a place where athletes can find some solace of like, no, no, no. Like I, I look, I look this way because, because I do this thing and because that's where my body is healthy and happy. I kind of want to counter both of you because I think that you could actually be like as good of an athlete as maybe either of you were in, in your respective sports with a different body type as well. Like, I don't think you necessarily have to be more muscular to do skiing or less muscular to do running. But I think if you're, if your body is predisposed to being more muscular and you're trying to be thinner for running, you're never going to be that good. But if you, if you go towards your body, exactly. If you accept your body and you work with your body and you fuel your body and you let your body look how it's supposed to, you're going to be optimized for whatever sport you choose. And yeah, there might be, obviously there's some delineation between sports but I think in that like smaller, like gray zone, it's not as black or white as we think. Like there's a lot more gray area than we want to, to admit to ourselves. And obviously like social media portrays it one way, right? We see women of certain sports who always look in one way. The girl who's winning this, this race is going to look this way. Who's doing this sport's going to look this way. But we all know that that's just not how it is. Like that's not what defines success in a sport. And I think in general, we just have to be truer to what our body is supposed to do and just help us get to our optimal like performance. 
Yeah. I just think culturally the sport that I gravitated towards in high school was more accepting of a wide range of body types than I feel like is culturally like from a team culture and a community culture standpoint is set up in, in running and, and like distance track. For, yeah, but we for, should like, change that. I think, Oh, hundred percent. I think we, I think yeah. we a hundred percent should change that because body, body size, body type does not, is not an indicator of optimal performance in those sports. But I think that as a high schooler, that's like, that is part of the reason why I gravitated towards that sport was because people looked all different, like looked all different ways. And I felt like I felt really at home within it. And do I think that's right? No. Like, I think that running should be that place, but, and I, and I do think that trail and ultra running is more so than marathon elite marathon running more so than, you know, most road and track, um, at the professional level. Right. Like I do think that our sport is more accepting of people in all shapes and sizes. Um, and culturally, I think that needs to change, particularly if we're going to protect young girls and women. And I think that's a, that's a super good point to an observation. So I think that's the same way that I graduated, that I gravitated toward tennis is because I saw other women who looked like me. And I think that's the really important thing with body image. And then we're talking, you know, we can even talk about social media and how we're talking about how important it is to have women role models in our sport that can be representative of all different body types, just like cross-country skiing can be. I mean, one of my heroes is Keegan Randall and she can like think how many pull-ups she can do. I don't even know. She but can like, beat, beat us all up for sure. Yeah. And then she can run a super fast 10K and half marathon. Like, you know what I mean? It's, it's, I, so I really think that, you know, we can, we can be, uh, you know, part of the the future and the progression of the sport, highlighting women of all different body types for, you know, performances and what they can do and not, you know, pigeonholing you into saying, no, you have to start here at this body type first. And then that leads to performance. And so I think one of the things that ties into this really well is the fact that social media plays a role in all of our lives, maybe more than it should on m- many days. And I think a big headline from the past couple of weeks as well has been this big whistleblower um, testimony from a former Facebook employee. Remember Facebook owns Instagram, owns WhatsApp. They own a bunch of things anyway. Um, but essentially, you know, they, they, they had internal documentations that showed that young girls on Instagram, it made one in three girls have like have worse body image issues. And there was even a government office that set up a fake Instagram account of a young girl and the algorithm fed her diet culture. And so I'm just wondering, like, can you, can you all relate to, to that, to, to swiping through Instagram and, you know, the, the algorithm not playing into giving you puppies or whatever, whatever you want it to give you? Well, I just think that I, I think immediately back to Hillary's story where she was living with a person, one person, and she compared herself to her. And then now extrapolating this out to this, where our girls now are living with millions of people. They see them on the regular, right? And so constantly. they're constantly comparing themselves to these people and it's, it's unrelenting. It doesn't stop. And so I can't even imagine how the, what the negative impacts of this are going to have downstream for these girls, but it doesn't shock me at all that it's, it's making these body image issues worse. And I definitely have found myself distracted as well as like down rabbit holes on certain Instagram algorithms where they're feeding me different images as well. And it's, it's, it's not healthy for sure. And it's, yeah, it's not, it's not real life. 
Yeah. And, and, and they're using filters and they're using all sorts of stuff, ring lights, makeup, things to make them look more perfect than usual. But I think that goes beyond social media, even let's say like magazine covers, right? So like, you know, we can go old school tech here. Okay. Magazine covers, getting that, that get that, that issue of outside or trail runner or whatever it is that you, you want to look at. And I distinctly remember, um, seeing a cover of Amelia Boone a number of years ago on the cover. And I was like, why the heck don't I look like her? You know, I feel, I feel like I have pretty good body image most of the time, most days, you know, you catch me 48 hours before my period and I don't like myself very much, but outside of those 48 hours, I feel pretty good about myself. You know, it's totally irrational. But I remember seeing that. And then when Amelia came out about her, about her eating disorder, Mm -hmm. I was like, the, like the lights came on for me where I was like, okay, this was unrealistic. This wasn't a healthy individual. And like, I have no idea if she feels like bad about that of like having, like of putting this image out there that, that young girls and women were looking up to that wasn't, you know, who was starving herself, who was making sure that like, you know, she like her abs were going to pop on that photo shoot or whatever it might be. Like that, that's a, that's a really hard question to ask a person because I know that what she's doing and I'm so happy that she's been open with her story because that will have an impact on young girls and women who, who might be struggling, right. To she, see, yeah. to see that. But I totally remember seeing that image of her and questioning why I didn't look like that. And she, so yeah. she has come out since then saying something kind of in relation to what you're talking about and that she would be walking in like a locker room or something. And, and, and a passerby would say something around the lines of, Oh my gosh, how do I get the body like yours? How do I look like you? I can't imagine looking like you. And this was when she was kind of coming into recovery and she would think like, you don't, you don't want to be like me. Um, and yeah. that was on one of her Instagram posts and, and I can always dig it up and find it and link it again, Instagram coming to its surface. But, um, yeah, what she's doing for her recovery is definitely good. Keeping it in public eye. And obviously it's like super proud of her for speaking about it. Yeah. I think, I think Amelia Boone, I think Jesse Diggins sharing her story, Jesse Diggins being, um, one of the first women to ever win an Olympic medal um, in Nordic skiing, a gold medal in Nordic skiing, her and Keegan Randall on their team sprint. I cried watching that, but Jesse has been open about her history with an, with an eating disorder. Um, like very, very cool to have that. Yeah. Like to have that out there in the open to, for girls to look up to. And I, oh, so when, when was current? Oh yeah. Two. Oh yeah. She had yeah. an eating disorder that mm-hmm. kind of, de- you know, derailed her post post collegiately. Right. Um, to come, to come back to that. And there's a lot of those stories out there. And I think that's, I think those stories being public is so important. And so to kind of mimic what Corinne was saying, I remember that magazine cover for Amelia Boone. And I remember thinking the same thing. And then, um, I have this magazine that I, I mean, people can't see it, but it's an outside magazine. Um, and it says the new, the new icons, the future of adventure is female. And I remember seeing this and it was just, you know, Lindsay Vaughn, um, Morgan Dixon, um, Mira Ray, she's on there. There's actually an article in here about yes, women are really better at ultra marathoners, and we have proof. <laughs> oh boy! Um, but I you know I was like, uh, I think we already debunked that. But like, yeah, there's there's um, or we talked about this too. But uh, um, but this magazine cover of just having different people, different body types, different body shapes, and you know, showing that they are successful in in their sport and there's this huge diversity and it doesn't have to be just one size fits all. And so I think that that's really important. And then like you all mentioned, having these honest conversations and bringing them to the forefront. 
Yeah. And then I think an interesting, you know, maybe this is a tangent, but I, I like, I've been thinking about this a lot and I'm wondering what you guys think about this. And if we're missing, if we're missing anything that's really pertinent, Keely, you'll, you'll correct me. You'll make, you'll, you'll be like, Hey, wait. Um, but I've always had this feeling that male athletes, male professional athletes just had to be good at their sport while there was this double, this dual expectation for female professional athletes that not only did we have to be good at our sport, but more importantly, even we had to be pretty or beautiful or attractive to, to, to be fighting for those contracts. And I'm wondering, have you guys ever felt that way? And, or like, what can we do to change that narrative? Because I do think that that is like, how do we have role models in the sport when you don't support women who, you know, you know, like, I don't know. I think that it's this, this thing with this very big difference between male contracts and female contracts in our sport more often than not. I completely agree. And I mean, I think I've said this before too, and maybe Corinne, we've, I've had like rant sessions with you. It's like, I don't necessarily want to wear a skirt because I feel like on principle, it's, you know, that's what it's saying to me. It's that like, I need to look cute as well as perform. So I think that was kind of in our conversation. It's like, you know, having the choice of, you know, if I feel comfortable in something else, like wearing something different. Yeah. I'm all for looking cute. I'm not, I just want to put that out there. I'm all for looking cute, feeling cute, feeling fast, whatever it is, you know, like, you know, like feeling like empowered in my life. Yeah. I always, there, I have a specific kit that I'll race in. And it's like, that's my race kit. I don't train in it. I just race in it. Cause it's like, I put it on and I'm like a superhero, but mm -hmm. I think that, you know, I don't know. Like, so it's, it's this thing where I think that maybe it's a societal norm that we're just internalizing here, but I've, I've always felt that when I've looked at like, okay, who in our sport has sponsorship, who in running has sponsorship? Yes, it's about results, but I feel like women are put on this pedestal, this like higher standard. Yeah. I, I saw a stat earlier today that said something like my girlfriend gets 300 more likes when I'm not in the picture with her or something like that. And it's, it's so true. I mean, there's certain images that get all of the following and it's typically ones that is showing women in, uh, you know, a sexier way. Yeah, I've so I and we'll, or we'll link her too. So I have this friend from college, Rachel Pohl, who is a phenomenal artist. And she speaks about this a lot on her on her Instagram platform. So you can follow body positive people. And I think that that is a good thing. Get the get the algorithm to send you this. Um, but Rachel Pohl talks about she's she's born to this very muscular, very quote unquote masculine body. People comment on her biceps all the time. Um, and so she, you know, she's put up a bunch of good posts about like, you know, this this works well, this doesn't like, you know, like, like trying to edit, edit her body down or feeling comfortable in her body. And so I just think it's, I don't know. She says, you know, if I, if I post in this, I get more likes. And if I post this, you know, like if I post in a bikini, of course I get more likes. And I think that that is a really, you know, what is that? We should be able to get likes without having to not with, with, while wearing clothing. Is, yeah. that, is that a fair, is that a fair ask? Like us, even if so. we're wearing clothing? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> and another person, I mean, this isn't someone um, who's necessarily in um, the running space, but I just really admire the work that she's doing because I think this topic that we're speaking of transcends just running. Um, but Caroline Tradway, um, she had a documentary um, just recently. Um, it's called Light, and it takes on specifically eating disorders in um, in the world of climbing. And, you know, it kind of follows the journey of certain athletes and their, you know, 
I just love it so much because it shows that like the word sending right and climbing is, is possible um, to send kind of like the hardest things that you've done in your entire athletic climbing career when you're at a healthy weight. Um, and so I just really, I, we can link that too in the show notes. I think it's a really cool documentary to check out. Awesome. Awesome. Um, I think the thing that we wanted to summarize here before we let y'all go for today too, was who's doing this well? Like, where is this happening? Who, what organizations can people look to? What, what, who can, who is not, yeah. Who's leading by example, I guess is my question there. What, what have you guys found? Yeah. Did you guys see the last women's world cup, the USA team came out saying that they had changed their training around their cycle. So they became more knowledgeable around their cycle. They had like poster boards around the locker rooms, reminding them that during different phases of their cycle, they might feel these different ways. And so they, I think were the biggest team that I've seen recently, like admit that they started actually tracking these things and implementing it in how they train and how they, how they perform, which was pretty cool. Yeah. Having that, having that be a, an, like an important thing, something that they weren't, weren't going to hide there and say, Hey, we need this information. We need to, to focus on this. We're not going to put it in a closet and pretend it doesn't, it doesn't happen. doesn't exist. What else have you, have you all seen? Um, I mean, this whole idea of like destigmatizing uh, the idea around, you know, periods and, um, you know, what it means to be a woman and, and train. Um, I think of athletes like, I mean, speaking of the power of social media, like Caroline Gleick, I remember her posting this, you know, this series of, of images of her on her period or, you know, bloody shorts, um, you know, go, there's so many times when I've gone out for a run and I've been on my period and I feel like I have to like, you know, hide or, you know, cut the run short. And then that's kind of given me the, the courage to be like, well, you know, this is what my body's doing today. And, you know, I'm just going to be honest with it. So it's like, she has a huge social media following. And I think it's real, she, you know, talks about these, these topics and is very open with them and unapologetic. Yeah. Using, using that platform. And then I think representation has been a big thing, right? right. It's been both at the, the global level, um, with like CBC pledging to have a balanced, have balanced female sports coverage during the Olympics, um, that like on a, on a much smaller scale, like the live commentary that we've done for Western States, for UTMB, for Broken Arrow, like a, an important part of what we were doing was making sure that we could get, like we could get equal coverage of our, of the front of our males, the men's race and the front of the women's race, because, you know, representation and showing that, matters because it's not you know it's there's there's two races happening out there um particularly in ultras when they both start at the exact same time it's really hard to try to cover everything but i think making that and making that a priority has been has been hugely valuable in the live coverage that we've been able to provide this year for those races totally yeah and then even thinking about like representation from a minority group lens um Obviously, like all of these issues we've talked about can be exacerbated from with, with for women and girls who are like in lower economical, socioeconomical statuses. And there's actually a cool group that's addressing this a little bit where they're actually raising money to give sporting event tickets to underserved youth. And you can also go in and buy a sporting ticket that donates to an underserved youth to actually go to a female professional sporting game. Um, so it's like 
introducing these girls who might not be able to afford to go see other girls like them play sports, um, which is, is really cool. Like, I think there's just like even a plain old Google, Google search nowadays for like women in sport shows you so many results because luckily there's finally some backing behind a lot of this. And, and I think there's a lot of players in the game trying to really increase the number of girls staying in sport throughout their lifespan. Um, and so it's really exciting. I think the future at least looks pretty bright. Yeah, I mean, a lot of this stemmed obviously by by Title IX, but I think recognizing that Title IX was not was not enough in a lot of these ways. So people like the Women's Sports Foundation also doing a lot of good work there to try to keep girls in sports and also providing funding for um, high high performing elite athletes in Olympic disciplines who, you know, Olympic sports don't oftentimes pay the bills. So um, providing funding for training training opportunities for for those women, I think, has been a huge part of their their uh, their goal. So very cool to see different organizations stepping up to try to find gender equity, but also um, inc- have initiatives that specifically target young young female athletes to keep them in sport by providing, you know, menstruation products because that shit's taxed and that's not fair. It's got a luxury tax on it and that's a whole other topic maybe, but it's like providing, mens- providing menstrual products to, to young women who might not be able to afford it otherwise, providing sports bras to young women who might not be able to afford it otherwise, People doing that kind of work, I think, is very, very important. Is there anything that we missed, Keely, that you would like to that you'd like to make sure that we get in this episode before we move oh, on to I think, similar but different topics? I think we'll always touch on stuff like this, right? But I think in general, like we hear you. We want to help all of you guys out there who are coaching girls through here, who are parents to girls through these like monumental ages of their lives and like, yeah, hopefully this has been helpful for you all, but just remember to be patient and encourage, encourage them to keep moving and have fun with it because it's a very awkward time of their lives when they're, when there's the most high percentage of them dropping out of sport. And so let's take some initiative and keep them in. Yeah. And that can even be as easy as, you know, reaching out to us, reaching out to other women in the sport who can, can come either in person or via zoom, do it, do a talk with your cross, your high school cross country team, your high school track team, whatever it might be. Um, because, you know, maybe, maybe you don't feel, you know, qualified to have this conversation with them, or maybe, you know, that they'll listen to someone else. So I think that that is, that's, uh, that's good. So we'll, I think doing that kind of stuff would be, would be really cool for us. I think we, some of us have already done that and I think we enjoy doing that. So hit us up. would love to find a way to, to reach, to reach your young athletes. It's very important to us. Okay. I think we're going to close out today with a little society slam, the things that you have been sliding into our DMs with over the past couple of weeks. So, um, Hilly, you have a slam ready to go, it sounds like. Can sure. Actually, this one is like, it's so fitting. Um, so this co- this comes from McKendry, um, and he's an organizational uh, psychologist, which he says is a fancy term for the study of the workplace. And he passed along this research paper, which I can pass along to you guys too, um, and, uh, basically he was talking about female leadership and he said, he sent me this paper and he said, the main point is that the more senior a female leader becomes the less of a role model they can be to more junior female leaders. And so he raised the question, um, this research suggests making yourself and your journey to leadership more open and relatable to be more accessible, to be a more accessible role model. So 
he'd love to hear how we all think about other women as role models and how we think specifically ourselves. I think we covered that in this episode, but ourselves as role models. And so I think, yeah, it's really interesting because um, that level of accessibility, I think we kind of like, this is a perfect society slam. So thank you, McKendry. We're already doing an episode on this. <laughs> yes. Yeah. We'll, we'll try to be as accessible as possible. Once again, just keep sliding into our DMs. We'll keep, <laughs> we'll keep answering them for you. Keely, do you have a society slam this week? Uh, I do. But I also just wanted to add that I think we all can like do a better job of being accessible by talking about all of the like awkward things that we think nobody wants to hear about. Right. Because I think at the end of the day, you might say something that you think is uniquely you and and so many other people have gone through it and they were just too scared to talk about it. So, yeah, I think that that allows people to relate. Uh, I do have one. It's kind of fun. So uh, I'm not going to say the name because I didn't ask them if I could, but someone asked our opinion around falling. And I thought it was pretty cool because it, it also ties into today because she says, um, I fall a lot. How do you recover mentally and physically? So that'll be something I want you guys to answer from. But then she also wants to know why do women get viewed more as clumsy, um, when they fall. And then maybe when a male falls, um, it might be more like an epic fall. Um, so those are her kind of like questions around it because she feels very embarrassed around falling and she wants to like kind of change her mindset around that. I kind of wonder if that goes back to that, like age old psychological principle where it's like, if a guy falls, he probably bet like, we'll blame it on bad luck. Whereas if a woman falls, she'll probably blame it on like not being skilled when really you guys are both falling because you're tripping over the same rock. <laughs> like That's okay. Sometimes it's because you're tired. I trip a lot when I'm tired or if I'm bonking. Mm -hmm. um, so normally it's my indicator to eat something. I'm out on a run or that I'm just, I'm still just tired from a big effort that I've done recently. Um, I fall predominantly going uphill, which is great. Like I look really, I look really skilled when I do it, I'm sure. Um, but I think that, you know, okay. So I come from a ski background again. And I would go to these camps at the national, like national elite group camps. And the U S ski team coach would get right in our faces and yell, if you're not falling, you're not trying hard enough. So I feel like I was trained, trained as a young skier to appreciate falling and being to say, well, I'm trying hard enough because I'm hitting the pavement. So I think that, you know, I try, try not to fall. I've learned how to roll out of falls from falling so frequently as the kid in various sports, um, all the way through high school and college. But I definitely think it's, you know, it's, it happens. I think it's kind of one of those things where you brush it off, you get back up, probably will fall again and that's okay. And then, you know, I always say, Hey, why am I falling? Is it because I'm, it's because I'm hungry. It's because I'm tired. Is it because I just, I've stopped lifting my feet up altogether and I'm trying to run through rocks instead of over them. Um, so I don't, I don't think you should be embarrassed by falling. And I think dudes just blame it on bad luck because they're dudes. I don't know if I have a comment about the falling part, so. You're really good at falling, Hillary. <laughs> okay, okay. okay. Um, but basically the getting the getting back up, it's, uh, you have to, because what other choice is there? Yeah, don't lay on the ground, unless you're taking a dirt nap because you've run 200 miles and you haven't slept, in which case you can fall to the ground and stay there for a couple minutes before getting back up, which I witnessed this week. I witnessed dirt naps during the 200 and they were insane. Um <laughs> People are wild. The brain is wild. We should do an episode about sleep at some point. Um, okay. My slam? I do have a slam. Um, I'm not going to say names because I didn't ask them. Um, but I had a number of athletes reach out to me um, after our last episode, the quartz program episode, um, who have been prescribed for, you know, they don't have exercise induced asthma or bronchial constriction. They have 
They've had asthma for potentially their whole lives. Um, they both um, have been prescribed inhalers, um, most of which are below the therapeutic level. So you don't, wouldn't even need a TUE, um, but including like long, long acting beta agonists to control their asthma. It's prescribed to them to take it, you know, twice a day type of thing. Like it's normal medication. I also had a doctor who said, who reached out to me on the same topic and said, if, if I was operating on a, a person who didn't take their medication, like I'd be like, I'd be liable if something happened to them. Like you need to take your medication. So both these, both these athletes reached out to, to, uh, courts and tried to straighten this out and try, you know, thought they had read it wrong, that maybe that they were off base, that this was insane. Um, and courts no said, no, we believe that TUEs are legal doping. And that if you need them to do the sport, you're not taking care of yourself, essentially kind of blaming it back on health, which I think is really backwards and villainizes athletes with chronic conditions. Um, so I think that the biggest thing there, the biggest takeaway for me is that we have gotten people fired up about this issue. And I'm hoping that we continue to get people fired up about this issue because it's going to be on us, the athletes, to take a stand with courts and the races that they are partnering with, like the UTMB series and the Ultra Trail World Tour, which will become the UTMB series, um, because that is going to have lasting impacts on our sport um, because it's not it's not a small number of athletes that need that need medications to to function at a normal human level. So thank you for reaching out with that. And I hope that we can continue that conversation because I think it is going to be of the utmost importance going into the 2022 race season, which starts very, very shortly. So um, stay tuned. Maybe we can get something off the ground here to form a, uh, an, a an athlete initiative around it. We're going to pen a large yeah. letter that you're all going to sign for us. <laughs> Let us know if you're interested. Yeah. Hit me up say i'm interested on court stuff let's do it um okay i think we successfully made it through episode six we're still awake everyone's functioning well we hope that you enjoyed our show today and we cannot wait to dive into our next episode for y'all too because it's on a similar topic so keep listening keep sliding into our dms we love to hear from y'all thank you so much and uh, have a good rest of your week